This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Valid one time on Friday. Separate participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax must update to rewards. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Gravel racing has certainly caused a splash over the last few years, but where is it going next? We're back with part three of our Future of Gravel series here on the Bike Radar Podcast with me, Catherine Moore. Joining us today in the Bike Radar studio, we have our very own in-house gravel guru, Jack Luke. And for more hot takes from across the pond, we've got the pleasure of also being joined by serial podium gracer, Ben Delaney. Thanks both for joining. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Good to see you all. I can see Ben blushing with your heaping of praise. (laughs) Always, always. So why don't we do what we've done with some of the other episodes in this mini-series. And before we look too far into the future, let's just... Think about how we got to where we are now. So in terms of competitive gravel events, races, you know, where are we? What are the different types and formats of these competitive events and races? Ben, why don't you kick us off with your sort of US take on things? My US take on things is that it's all one big lump at the moment as far as what, you know, competitive events versus non-competitive events. We use throw around the term mullet racing and that. Oh. There's, uh, you know, it's business at the front, party at the back, right? So there's, you know, a start line and a finish line, and participants can take uh, the thing as seriously or as non-seriously as they like, right? So uh, compared to something like road or mountain, where there's often different events, like there's a cross-country race event, everybody is racing that thing. A criterium or a road race, everyone is racing that thing. And if you get dropped from the group, you're having a different experience and it's not a fun experience. And then there's recreational road events where if you're racing it, you're a doofus. <laughs> <laughs> so gravel is more akin to uh, you know large-scale running events, like say the London Marathon, where yeah, it's world's elite at the front, mm-hmm. full out, then 
at the back are people who, if they just complete the dang thing, that will be a huge accomplishment. And then there's all the rest of us somewhere there in between. And gravel is has that mullet format. Mm. That's a really nice analogy. That's not one I've heard before, but you're you're totally on the money there because yeah, the majority of people who do a marathon are there for the challenge in itself. I think that's probably true of gravel as well. Nice work, Ben. Yeah, that was good. Where do the people in like the Teletubby outfits fit in? <laughs> I would say like middle to back. <laughs> There's always somebody, you know, showing the rest of us up by putting in an incredible time whilst wearing something that looks very uncomfortable. Very slight diversion, but on the way back from a gravel ride once, uh, when I used to live in Edinburgh, I caught the tail end of the Edinburgh Marathon, like the absolute far back end, and a guy had just done it in chain mail. And he, oh. looked, and he looked really sad. Oh, <laughs> I yes. think I would if I had. Yes, yeah, no amount of of uh, you know chamois butter could help with that sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I've ever run in chainmail, but just you know, yeah, just figuring. Well, so what about different formats then? You know, are they all that sort of like A to B, start to finish, or do you get different variations on that? Different lengths and. Uh, definitely variation by length both in uh, event to event and in style. But then the second one, mo- it, mostly it's the, the, the clock starts at the start and stops at the finish. Some early variations that are that were like the grind duro that Giro put on and continues to put on. And there's a few spinoffs of that around the world where it's only time segments that you're racing. Uh, and then you regroup and hang out. And that's a, that's popular. That one's harder to pull off logistically. Like it's a great concept of instead of everybody just seeing each other at the start and then you never see each other again until the next year, you know, regrouping at aid stations and hanging out. Like that's a conceptually that's pleasing to a lot of us. But you know, having been on the the promoting end of events like that, something is always going to go wrong with timing. <laughs> you know, even if you just have a start finish and having multiple like. If there's three segments, you've got six timing mats. And so I think a lot of promoters kind of shy away from that just because of the cost and the logistical hurdles, especially if all these timing points are way out in the middle of nowhere. So great concepts, hard, harder to pull off. The one gravel event I am going to do this year is Grand Juro Wales, which I did a couple of years ago and really, really enjoyed. And uh, we're going to be sending a small contingent there because it's a really fun event. But yeah, I always... Um, yeah, it's more of like a festival atmosphere and a bit more party pace than, say, like your spicy go fast long distance gravel race. I mean, certainly in the US, Ben, do you think gravel races, certainly in the early days, very much tended towards the extreme in terms of length and sort of difficulty? Is that sort of true of most gravel events still, or do you get a more broad spread of things? True, that was definitely the the origins, the the creation myth of gravel of, is these ridiculously absurd things where just trying again like trying to complete the distance was kind of the goal sort of like with the start of an iron of iron man it wasn't this hyper competitive thing of chasing these marginal gains it was just like is this even possible to do so yeah that was that was the the origin of it uh but now like you know unbound gravel is the the, the biggest one that's coming up here next weekend there's a 25 mile version of that and a 50 and a 100 and the 200 and then the 350 xl so and will you be racing uh, this um, year I, w- I presume you'll be taking the win in the xl then 
I, I've t- 200 is the little furthest I've gone on gravel. And that was good and plenty. And I'm going in the other direction. I did the 100 last year and I'm looking forward to doing the fundy hundy again this year. Nice. nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting what you were saying there about the logistics being the challenge for the sort of segment racing, the enduro style racing. Because I think that's a format that's a lot more popular over here. And I think it's because of our sort of patchwork of mm. off-road trails um, and gravel roads that makes that a lot easier to manage. Um, I think there's some sort of rule, isn't there, about racing on British highways or tarmac? You, there is. I could not tell you what yeah. the specific rule is, though. Makes um, it quite difficult to legitimise yeah. racing. Yes, and it's, you know, the sort of... Um, licensing and liability requirements are pretty complicated i think generally speaking and also like on bridleways or footpaths as well there's additional rules that organizers have to get around with that so i think perhaps also we don't have like a bazillion miles of gravel roads to race on so having (laughs) basically small mountain bike races is probably easier (laughs) yeah so that's an interesting interesting comparison there between um, the uk and the us what about the really long ones like we touched on unbound XL, sort of bikepacking ultras, they've really seen a massive increase, I think, over recent years. Are there many in the US that are sort of becoming quite high profile, or do you think it's mostly in Europe we're seeing those? There's a few that certainly capture the imagination and are very impressive feats, like Tour Divide. Mm. Nuts. What an event. (laughs) Yeah. US tip to tail, Canada border to Mexico. Very few people still do that for a number of reasons, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, the cost and scope of being able to pull off something like that physically and financially is, is just not in the cards for most of us. So uh, those stories continue to be inspirational, but uh, that's not where the bulk, I don't see that as ever becoming a, a mainstream thing, not that the gravel is mainstream, but just like within our weird little niche of bicycle racing, a smaller niche of gravel racing. Long endurance, long endurance, <laughs> long endurance. That's, That's what it's called now. Long endurance. <laughs> you've got endurance racing. You've got long endurance. That format is itty bitty. I think it's kind of different here, certainly in the UK and Europe, where long endurance uh, riding <laughs> has definitely captured the imagination. There's re- a couple of really good websites. Dot Watcher is definitely the biggest that does sort of live reporting on these ultra events. But if you look at it from a like a um, Uh, commercial perspective there's quite a lot of brands who've been aligning themselves with that sort of world cutting into that niche the ones that pop to my mind are the likes of like albion who make nice cycling kit and they sponsor quite a lot of ultra racers but also Fairlight, good bike brand here in the uk specialized in steel bikes they sponsor quite a lot of ultra racers and i think there's definitely small like it is definitely small it's not um nowhere near as big as as gravel but I think there's definite appetite for people to read about this stuff. Because as you say, it is very, very aspirational. It's very cool, all these amazing places you go. And great from a content perspective, putting my boring editor's hat on. But like, it, yeah. you know, people, th- these make fantastic stories. And I think commercially, there's definitely appetite there for people to watch and read about this stuff. Absolutely. I was at Wild Horse Gravel in Colorado last weekend, one that you and I did. Great event. Jack. Um, mm-hmm. Lachlan Morton came out won it handily and <laughs> it's just you know walk in the park for him when he did the his alt tour riding not only the entire distance of the tour de france but all the transfers as well and self-supporting carrying his own stuff 
traffic for that, at least on Velo News, was usually much, much higher than the stage report of the actual Tour de France. So to your point of like wearing the editor's hat, is there an appetite for reading about that stuff, especially at that level? Absolutely. And I think some of that translates to a participant standpoint of not events, but just like, yeah, doing a, a long weekend or just even a short weekend, mm. long during short weekend bike packing where it's not an event it's just like something that you and uh your significant other your buddies whatever go out and do yourself and it's it's not a timed competitive thing by any means it's just a, an exploratory i think that sort of idea of established routes as well within the i really like long durance i'm gonna stick with this long durance right a, f- a friend of mine put together what's become a bit of a classic route in scotland called the badger divide from inverness down to glasgow or the other way if you want to go and I'm always amazed by how many people do it. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, I don't know, like the Pacific Crest Trail or something. It's a thing you go and do and mm-hmm. it has its own sort of hype around yeah. it. And I know the likes of like the East Devon Trail that you put to get together, Catherine, it's much the same. Not like within gravel racing per se, but as a sort of event, maybe mass start, things like that. There's definitely more of that I see, a bit more hype around it. And then lots of fun things around fastest known times as well, but a little bit. That's a bit off-piste compared to gravel racing as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same here where it's like Cocopelli Trail or different, yeah, different routes, different trails. Uh, yeah, maybe a racer inspires the idea of checking out the place, but then it's a competitive thing when people go and do it. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We should probably just explain, since we're talking about the competitive angle of gravel, about FKTs then, Jack. Um, can you explain what, what does FKT mean and why are they suddenly such a big thing? Uh, I can't answer the second question, <laughs> but there's definitely FKT's fastest known times are, well, as the name suggests, people publishing and maintaining lists on the fastest known times for certain trails and routes. Um, loads of them have been falling here in the UK. There's a really good uh, Instagram account and website called Fastest Known Times. And the, yeah, it's sort of like a, like an individual time trial, essentially, along these uh, these kind of established routes. And I think that's a sort of low barrier to entry for competitive riding, and that's quite appealing to people. I say low barrier to entry, you have to be astonishingly fit to do these <laughs> times. But nonetheless, you know, you're not like having to pay to do it, essentially. Um, and it's definitely become a bit of a hypey thing here in the UK. And you can do it whenever you want. Do whatever you want. Whenever there's a stonking tailwind. <laughs> <laughs> now, a lot of them are circular, unfortunately. But yeah, they're definitely really popular. Yeah, FKT certainly caught fire during COVID when racers like had no races to do. Well, then how do we race? What? How do we define ourselves if we are not racers? Well, we can race the clock. One FKT that I am excited about, again, from a content perspective, the Taco Bell Century FKT. Taco not, Bell not exactly. Not ex- so you have Taco Bells there? You're, you're familiar with it's yeah it, very very cheap quasi mexican fast food mm-hmm. not exactly gravel but definitely spirit of gravel and it's, it's kind of a bad idea the concept is to <laughs> ri- ride 100 miles as fast as you can and there are rules 
being you, the only sustenance you can take on, including hydration, is that which would that you acquire at a Taco Bell. Wow. God, what a fast, fast way to give yourself a very sad tummy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is reminding me of the University of Bristol Mission Burrito oh, yeah. Challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they're sponsored by a sort of local burrito, mm-hmm. well, national firm, maybe. Um, and there's one in here in Bristol, one in Bath, and one in Newport. And I think they do a about a hundred mile ride that takes in all three wow. with a stop for a burrito at each. Yeah. There's clearly no, no original <laughs> ideas because we went back when I was doing more training. We used to always stop at Parsons, which is kind of like Greg's in the Southwest, just like a cheap bakery. And once we tried to plan a ride between the furthest north, uh, south, east and west Parsons, and we're like, oh, that'd be really funny. Well, that'd be really good. And then we looked at it and I was like, oh, that's like a 200 mile day. <laughs> disgusting. Food. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Sounds yeah. terrible. Wow, this is very spirit of gravel. Yeah, it was sort of like the beer mile and running of like something yeah. that's funnier for someone else to do. But yeah. So that's competitive events. And I guess it would be just good to touch on non-competitive events whilst we're here in gravel. Because, um, you know, it's not all about racing. There are quite a few other things popping up, whether that's like social weekenders or local club rides, bikepacking rallies. Um, do you see sort of a lot of that where you're based, Ben? And what sort of forms are they taking and are they taken off? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, Colorado, there are a lot of you know just group rides. Once upon a time, group rides were all road, and there still are some of those. But there's definitely been an explosion of gravel group rides. Some of them are weekly things, like the, in Boulder on Thursday night. There's a fast gravel event on Tuesdays lunchtime. Uh, the clothing company Panache has a ride called the Rowdy Ride. Carrie and Dom, who work at Specialized in Boulder, have uh, a, a crew called Thank Gravel. It's Friday, TJIF. <laughs> and once a month, they put on big blowout rides that are a little a little deceptive in that they pride themselves on there's are t-shirt rides, there's t-shirt rides, everybody's welcome to t-shirt. But they'll do like 80 mile, you know, 8,000 foot climbing days. So it's very, very difficult, but they... Put it on Instagram. It's like, uh, super chill and fun. And it is. It is super fun, <laughs> but it's not necessarily super chill. It's hard. Spirit of gravel and all. Um, and the, uh, more recently, Kaylee Fretz, you know, is one of the guys behind, guys and guys behind the Escape Collective is back on his Secret Grow event, mm-hmm. which is a free thing. But, you know, very lighthearted. I guess you could call it competitive. There's no entry fee. There's no timing chips but you ride a a series of to a series of points you have to do push-ups and film yourself doing push-ups and and put your your sad cyclist (laughs) arms doing these push-ups on instagram and then they're like random prizes awarded like if you if you happen to come in eighth then you win a prize um that that sort of thing is definitely catching fire because people like to do an event people like to go and do something and having somebody else put the route and put the date on the calendar is usually uh, motivating enough. A good way to herd cats. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> otherwise, you just have these just vague ideas that go nowhere. Like, yeah, that would be cool to do, and you never do it. But if somebody's like, "Hey, guys, like this this weekend, here's we're meeting up here, we're doing this thing." So yeah, that's those type of things are are definitely gaining in popularity. 
There's a little bit of that sort of here as well. The one that pops to my mind, I think it was just this weekend past from when we were recording, was Brother in the Wild, mm. which is uh, Brother Cycles' bike brand here. And they do a sort of like, I'd describe it like a festival. But it's not like timed or anything. It is just like a sort Have you done it before? Yeah, it's brilliant. I've never done it. Tell me more. Oh, it's fantastic. So um, it's sort of a collaboration, I think, but headed up by the two brothers behind Brother Cycles. And they get the Wood Cyclery on board, who are a local bike shop that specialise in um, adventure bikes and gravel bikes. And so there's always like a sort of more casual, chill um, brother ride. But there's also the Wood Cyclery WTF ride, um, which is a bit more challenging. And for the last couple of years, it's been in Purbeck Hills in Dorset, which are absolutely beautiful. And it does mean that you get to um, go down to the sea to this lovely little cove. I can't remember what it was called, but for a dip mid-ride. And then there's this, the compass, I think it's the pub, Mm -hmm. where you sort of get served buy a little hatch and they do amazing chips and a pint and you know it's just one of those rides it's like really challenging but wow is rewarding in terms of scenery and all the people that go there are fantastic and um sort of great food and fire pits and talks afterwards and and then you probably do the same thing all over again the next day so really good sort of community event like that that sounds wonderful Um, yeah that's a that's one that's recommended and on the same weekend it was sisters in the wild which has absolutely nothing to do with brother in the wild they just have happen to have quite similar names, um, which is um, an event for women and non-binary and trans women up in the Lake District. They have their sort of annual get-together with, you know, amazing rides in that neck of the woods. So, yeah, it was a busy weekend and I missed out on both, which I'm very <laughs> bitter about. <laughs> oh, dear. So that's sort of where we're at with gravel racing and events at the moment. And apart from the number of them just like massively, exponentially growing in recent years, how have they changed? How have they become refined? What's become different? I'd be really interesting to take the the US perspective on this from you, Ben, because I think perhaps a few things have changed. People are making money out of gravel racing. <laughs> um, it's big change. Yeah, there. <laughs> it's become yeah. Pro riders or recently retired pro riders are showing up and and really racing the things, and that's. That's added a lot of layers, most of them positive, uh, some of them adding some complexity that require uh, a little more serious thinking. You know, part of what attracts us to gravel is that a relatively free experience from vehicles and rules and regulations and having to have a license and uh, figure out which category you're in. Um, but the faster these things get and the larger they get, the more dangerous they become. And at some point somebody needs to take some responsibility for safety. Like we should all take responsibility for our own safety, but people are lemmings. And um, <laughs> so I think that that's the biggest change. And there's a lot of, you know, various rabbit holes we could go down with that one with just like the race formats, biggest events have diverged or, or toyed with the idea of diverging from the one big mass start format which has been a defining feature of gravel as compared to mountain biking or road racing, where there's different categories, genders are split, often ages are split. Um, So unbound this year, for instance, pro men have a start followed by pro women followed by everybody else. Interesting. Um, And I think that's for the event of that size, that's a positive thing just because of the sheer scale of the thing, you know, Particularly with the um, pro riders, what's the kind of rationale behind that splitting out the uh, genders? Uh, some of it is a 
for Lifetime, which runs Unbound, it's a a coverage mechanism because mm-hmm. I think we we all want to see equal coverage of women's and men's racing. You can't literally see women racing often mm-hmm. when there's four thousand people starting and there's one Jeep at the front with some kid hanging off the back with his phone trying to get <laughs> clips for Instagram live. And they're just getting like whoever happens to be on the front. And often that will be male riders at the very front. So the top woman might be 10 riders back, but you can't see her. And so that's just, you know, visually not that gravel is really a spectator sport, but in events like that, you can't, you can't tell what's going on. And then similarly from like a racing tactics perspective, it certainly changes when women are racing amongst a few thousand guys versus racing by themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's been like batted back and forth about, you know, what's more fair from a competitive standpoint and what works best for coverage of events that are difficult at best to cover. And then what's the mm-hmm. spirit of gravel, man. <laughs> Will you be lining up on the uh, pro start grid for the fundy handy, Ben? I will not. I don't know for the for the hundred. I don't think for the hundred they have the pro women, pro men. Everybody mm-hmm. else starts. I believe that's just for the main event, the, the two hundred. Well, you belong there. If there was one, then I've no <laughs> doubt you'd be the front of that grid. He's being very humble. Uh, didn't didn't you podium that last year? I think he won. It. I got I got third last year. Okay, um, but again, the two hundred is the is the marquee event. That's that's where you've got the Sofia Gomez Viafanes and the Keegan Swinson who can do 350 watts for 10 hours racing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's the hundred is out. like the dads and grads, as I call it. It's like, you know, mostly people 40 plus <laughs> and then people who've recently graduated from high school if they have in fact graduated yet. On a kind of tech perspective, I also know there's been some changes to Unbound this year, particularly around aero bars and kind of banning them essentially to make the riding safer you have to have your hands on the uh, on the brakes at all times do you think that's a positive move for unbound yeah i think it's fine for the pro racers most of those gals and guys can handle their bikes fine i mean certainly there's crashes but i don't think i don't know how you'd verify this I doubt any pro riders have crashed each other or themselves because of error bars. They usually crash because there's a pinch point in the race and everyone's trying to be in the same place at the same time. For the rest of the riders, many folks for long endurance, long endurance events, as we're calling them, <coughs> like the error bars, not <laughs> from a Tour de France time trial, you know, reduce your CDA perspective, but just to change up the hand position when you're out there all bloody day. So. I think there's mm-hmm. be some folks lamenting the loss of that option just to take a load off the wrist for a while, but I don't think that one really affect the the pro race side of it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when I did it quite a few years ago now, I I've never used aero bars, so I don't know what I'm missing, but I remember turning at the sort of the furthest point in the race turning around and realizing I had 80 miles to go into a block headwind. It probably would have been quite useful back then, but um, yes, yeah, yes, I can I can definitely see from a safety perspective, and thankfully, when I did it, I didn't see many people with aero bars anyway. I don't think it was popularized mm. in sort of the masses at that time. 
um, which I would have been quite relieved by because I always get a little bit nervous if there's somebody on a group ride with aero bars on. It's amazing we've managed to discuss this entire section without dunking on triathletes and their riding <laughs> ones, but yeah, we'll, we'll move on. Yes. <laughs> how about you, Jack? How, how have you seen gravel racing evolve in the UK and Europe? Mm, much as uh, Ben said, it's become more serious. Um, the mm. Graloch just took place a couple weekends ago up in Dumfries and Galloway, and that's the first of the UCI gravel series um, to take place in the UK. And some pretty spicy racers showed up at that one. Um, we didn't have a team on the ground there, but by all impressions, we kind of got it. It was like a serious race. Do you mm. know? What I mean? Like it, it's probably the first thing in the UK. Like, that's not totally fair because the likes of the Dirty Reaver has attracted um, big names in the past, but as a sort of uh, marquee gravel event to steal Ben's phrase, I think that's the first serious one I've seen in the UK and I'm, I've no doubt that given the popularity of it here, we'll see more and more of that. But in terms of um, racing, like more, like this is more reflective of the cycling industry as a whole, but like you show up and these, like many people will be on their best bike, which is a gravel bike. Um, people invest a great deal of money into gravel bikes as they once would road race bikes, for example. And the sort of level of tech is is so much higher. There's no sort of cobble or the fewer cobbled together bikes. It's it's all the fanciest, fanciest stuff you can get. <laughs> what I find really interesting between the UK and the US in terms of comparing gravel racing is... Um, you have amazing gravel racing teams over there, from what I can tell. Whereas we don't really have that as yet. You know, we have a lot of privateers, if you like, um, gravel racing in the UK. And I think Ribble Collective is a fairly new thing for this year, where you see quite a few top riders sort of making their own um, itineraries for races throughout the year, but riding within sort of under that banner. I don't know if that's something that will come. I'm I'm leaping ahead now onto the future of gravel racing. That's fine. Whether that's something that will come in the UK in time, as we see, you know, the number of domestic road teams has massively fallen over recent years, and whether mm. that funding might be put elsewhere into gravel racing teams, or whether it's more of a sort of privateer orientated oh, thing. I think it's more likely that um, yeah, domestic road racing here has had a torrid time in recent years, mm. and it's always been hard to make money from road racing generally, but. Um, I think if these smaller teams do a sort of EF education and branch out into other events, like it's always going to be more appealing to be doing more events. And again, from a sort of like content and marketing perspective, there's just more stories to tell there. So I would think that teams taking on lots of different stuff will be a common theme of uh, the organised team side of things and organised professional racing side of things. Is that something you think is true of the US, Ben? Yes, and I know the the big brands are cautious in how they can approach how they want to approach this because they don't want to be seen as you know coming in wielding a giant hammer. So, for instance, like a a trek could support a much larger gravel program and have you know eight athletes take the start, same bike, same kit, and ride a team time trial and smash things. I think they're aware that that wouldn't go over very well and instead of being a positive marketing yeah. like oh you guys are a bunch of bullies bringing in world tour riders and you know huge <laughs> budgets and a like a world tour bus pulling up to this you know dirt parking lot where everybody else is like sleeping in the back of their old subaru hatchback um of course you're going to beat up on us 
So it's quite that's quite an interesting point. Something yeah. I haven't really considered, but like the idea of tactics within gravel racing isn't something we've really ever touched on. But I suppose that would be quite a sensitive subject because you could very well bring one really hot rider and a team of um, sort of domestiques to sort of drag them round towards the end. But I imagine that would be quite frowned upon. Is that sort of the case? That is. And again, like most of these gravel events don't have written rules, but there's this mm-hmm. unwritten rule. Don't be a jerk. Well, what does that mean? Like, is, are we trying to win here? Why not <laughs> use team tactics? Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's another wrinkle in the men and women racing together. If you've got mm-hmm. a talented woman and a bunch of teammates who can help her along, why wouldn't you do that? If the object is to win the race, why, why yeah. wouldn't you employ the basic fundamentals that you do in any other? type of bike racing mm. um yeah that's that yeah it's fascinating what, isn't what it difficult one to unpick and, unless you quite literally send people out down a start ramp like a tt which clearly isn't going to happen um I, I don't see an obvious answer to that maybe, maybe essentially team-based racing will become a thing within gravel mm. food for thought it's just fast like in what other cycling discipline do you deliberately not Try to win. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that, yeah, trying, but some of these brands or teams or whatever could do a lot more. It comes back to the spirit of gravel, doesn't it, Ben? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and again, like I wrote a spirit of gravel story at Steamboat when Lauren de Crescenzo, one of the strongest women, you know, worked with her male teammates as well as her female teammates to win. Some drafting and also some of her teammates jumping ahead to the aid station getting her water bottle so she didn't have to stop and, and mm. in many ways like that that's just that was a very effective strategy there were no rules against this at steamboat gravel many of her competitors put up their hands like well that's that's against the spirit like yeah it's nothing against the letter of the law there is no letter of the law <laughs> but that was not a you know equal footing thing so i think that's where we're going to see that's one of the ways we're going to see the bigger gravel races evolve is that you need to we need to have some parameters. Like if we're going to play a game, we need to all play the same game. If, especially like when there's money involved, if there's money involved, I think it's a reasonable expectation for riders to have some basic safety infrastructure in place. Like part of why gravel racing has exploded in the U S similar to what you were saying about, uh, road racing being on the decline in the, in the UK, because it's, it's cost, right? Like it costs a lot of money to shut down roads and road race promoters for the most part do it properly in part because of that's mm-hmm. the what's required by law and in part because they want to keep people safe that costs money part of how, how gravel racing came about is like doing events in the middle of nowhere on open roads where you're not applying for a race permit you just tell people at the start and you make them sign a, a waiver hey this is on open roads be cool and that's fine when it's just a handful of people in the middle of nowhere. But when you've got, you know, thousands of people who you know maybe just watched the Giro stage that morning and had one espresso too many, and they think they've got the whole road <laughs> to themselves, and they're taking blind corners at full speed on the wrong side of the road, that is a recipe for disaster. And like in some events, we've seen people get hit and killed by cars, and that's obviously not okay boring logistical question for you but like at the likes of unbound is that the case where it's raced on open roads or with an event of that scale All, are the roads shut down absolutely every gravel race in america is raced on open roads that's mad that's that's absolutely mad yeah so it's <laughs> again like when you know back in the day when they started when it was a handful of people often in the middle of a kansas cornfield like that was okay and part of the 
the format of it, it's, you know, a mega long durance <laughs> distance. If you have to stop at a stop sign for a minute or two, who cares? You're out there for 12 hours, probably by yourself for most of it. But when it's a big group and most of the group is just blazed through this stop sign, you're going to say, well, if they were, they were safe, it's probably fine for me to also just cruise mm. on through. A lot of the bigger events, I should say, you know, do pay for police support to be at the bigger intersections to stop traffic. So it's not like it's completely wide open, like they haven't thought about this happening. Yeah, they yeah, have yeah. police there. They have lots of volunteers there. And those are those are good and necessary things. However, cars are on the roads because the roads are not shut down. And many of the people, many of the drivers are unaware that there's an event going on until... You know, they see a police officer or a volunteer with a vest on, put up a, a flag. So, so, yeah, that's mm. an area for improvement. <laughs> mm. and, and at the same time, you know, bike racers, being the lovely, cheap people that we are, don't want to pay a lot of money. So people, as participants, have this kind of double expectation of like, yes, I, I expect to be perfectly safe and people to take care of me. And I want to be able to go through stoplights and stop signs without having to look. And I don't want to pay more than 10 pounds for an event. It's like, well, mm. you, <laughs> you can't have both. You need to like take responsibility for your own actions or be willing to like <laughs> pony up money. Like if you're going to yeah. do, I haven't done many triathlons, but the few I have done, I've been blown away at the level of support of mm. how well those are marked off. But you're paying, but you're paying like 10 times what you would for a bike race. So now that we've just talked about that, I'm thinking about when I did wild horse gravel with you. I say with you, I mean, yeah, two hours behind we did you, together, but whatever. Yes. <laughs> um, I now that I think about it, I remember coming into is it Debec? Debec. 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 That was it. Um, and sharing the gravel roads with those great big uh, tankers, which was fine. Like they were well aware there was an event going on. They were miles ahead. But now that I think about it, like, yeah, that road was open. I just hadn't really considered because oh, yeah. it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But now, yeah, I can I can see how that would become quite complicated. Yeah, and so that event, the promoters, Chandler Smith and Scott Olmsted, are they've been doing events for 20 years. And so we did a neutral for the first 10 miles, which is very unusual for mm. gravel. But part of that was because like they wanted to get all the way through the town before mm. they turned people loose. But yeah, that's a pretty unusual thing. Normally, it's just, yeah, you start the start and maybe for the first, off you yeah, go. off you go. And yeah, those tanker trucks, yeah, maybe some of them wear, maybe not. They're just like, you know, picking up natural gas and going about their day. Just like a mm -hmm. lot of people in like, you know, BWR California is probably the most heavily trafficked event I've been to because that's right in the heart of San Diego County. There's millions of people there. Not everyone is aware nor cares that you are have donned your stretchy pants and are trying to pedal your bicycle quickly. <laughs> They're just trying to get their daughter to the violin lessons or whatever, you know, so they are not expecting you to be mm. jumping out into traffic. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's totally at odds with how most stuff's done here where like gravel roads in particular, they don't exist in the same way that they do in the States. Like a gravel road is a gated thing used for forestry access. That's it, really. So if you're on a gravel road, you know with all certainty you are extremely unlikely to come across a vehicle. But there are like very small sort of like when I'm thinking about um, the Dirty Reaver in particular, there's sort of short road sections there, but they are in the absolute middle of nowhere. Um, it's just not, not a problem we face here. Interesting. Hmm. Mm. 
How about you, Jack? Where do you see the future of gravel racing going? Probably more like the UCI style series thing. Um, I think we'll see more established series coming up. I know like the Lifetime is it Lifetime series it's called, which includes Unbound and, and other events. Uh, yeah, that style of racing, I think will, or rather that style of um, grouped events will mm. become bigger, trying to create a bit of hype around classics essentially but now that we've been talking about it i wonder if there's a future where there could be an interesting race with a sort of team dynamic more like a traditional road race i'd watch that that sounds quite entertaining and chaotic (laughs) almost a team time trial sort of yeah Team time trial with everybody at the same time. <laughs> a race. <laughs> no, I, I could see that being quite an entertaining one, but I couldn't foresee how on earth you would uh, organise that. But yeah, that's probably it for me. Hmm. I think, and you? Yeah. In the, I don't know whether we'll see more teams or, or certainly I could see, as you were saying, more brands getting on board with mm. supporting individuals as racers going to these sorts of, you know, the lifetime series or the gravel earth series or um even individual events i could see a lot more sort of sponsorship focus going into those i'm not sure about the sort of um money aspect Mm. i don't think that's something that's very widely publicized no i don't think cycling makes Um, any money to be honest (laughs) (laughs) but in terms of prize money yes for um at least for the sort of european events that i've looked at Mm. um I have no idea. I genuinely, I don't think for like the Reaver, for example, I don't think there are cash prizes. I don't think that's an incentive for sort of privateers to be going off. Maybe it could be. How, is it, how does it kind of work in the US? People making a living being gravel racers? A handful. Scratching out a living? Uh, a handful, <laughs> yes. Scra- yes, scratching and clawing, uh, piecing together things. And for th- for those folks, prize money is a part of it, but still in and of itself isn't enough. So Lifetime Grand Prix has a quarter million dollars prize purse for the series, seven races. I was talking to Alexi Vermeulen about this. He was third last year. Keegan Swinson and Sofia Gomez Viafane won their respective categories. And he- Alexi was figuring that they probably spent as much in getting to the events and bringing their mm-hmm. media crews, as it were, to the events and mechanic and such as they did mm-hmm. winning the events. So break even. Break even. So for those folks, it's you know, piecing together a bike sponsor, a helmet sponsor, a clothing sponsor. You know, the way traditional bike racing has been run in part, but with individuals as a way to make a mm-hmm. living there. There's mm-hmm. this weird dynamic of like in some ways they're inspirational, but in some ways they're kind of heckled by some of the gravel normies if you would of like hey that's not mm-hmm. what gravel's about man like why are you getting to <laughs> get paid and some of it's just you know bitterness and jealousy why are you getting paid to do these things that the rest of us have are paying to do because well, it's like well because yeah <laughs> you're not a professional athlete but there's a, a handful of folks there and i i think way we'll see gravel grow is from the business end promoters looking at their numbers okay what's actually bringing people out is it a prize purse of you know, if you win, you get a hundred quid. No. Is it because you're going to have a fun time and get food served through a hatch and get to jump in a lake and <laughs> hang out with your friends and listen to good bands and do some great writing? That's, that's what most of us are after. Yeah. Right. Mm. And, you know, you look at these events that have various distances, the long distance is almost, almost never the, the biggest category. Mm. So I think many of us enjoy 
you know, the, the adventure and the exploration and the camaraderie of these events. So I think that's where promoters are going to start or, you know, continue to invest some creativity and money into hosting people for a fun weekend. So I think the, you know, some of the big races will continue to get more serious and faster, but I think the big growth will be in cool experiences that are fun for all of us, regardless of speed. Cool. Well, that's your future of gravel then. Future we've, of gravel we've racing. Into our, our little crystal ball and we've come up with an answer. We'll be back in five years to <laughs> check our answers, see how we've done. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's all for episode three of the Bike Radar Future of Podcast mini series. But make sure you tune back in next week for our final episode where we chat all things gravel community. Thanks for joining us, subscribing, and letting us know what you think by leaving us a review. And finally, a hearty thank you to Jack and Ben for joining me once again and offering their gravel racing wisdom. Until next time, ciao. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. Oh,